Welcome to the Take Two podcast, where we discuss highly debated biblical topics. We ask questions you may be afraid to ask. Buckle your seatbelts because today we are tackling the topic of creation. What happens when you mix a sharp teenager with a Bible professor who happens to be her mom? You get the Take Two podcast with Emma and Carmen Imes. Special thanks to Prairie College for sponsoring this episode and to you for joining us. So, some people, scientists, say that the Earth is really old. People have a lot of different opinions on how the Earth was created. But、um, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, also think that the Earth was created in six days and、mm-hmm. it's pretty young.、Mm-hmm. So, how old is the Earth?、Mm. It's a great question. And there's not probably a single answer that would satisfy everybody. But I'm glad you asked it because I think it's worth diving in more deeply to see. What is it that we're reading when we read this book? So, probably the number one misconception that people have about this book is that it dropped from the sky, leather bound, engraved with our name on it, just ready for us to read and understand.、Um, we, we think of the Bible as answering our questions. But what if the Bible is an ancient book written by ancient people in another culture? And so it's actually answering ancient questions. We would want to first ask, What are the questions ancient Near Eastern people had, and how is this book answering that question? Yeah, so what can you tell us about like, the history of, like, from Genesis 1,、mm-hmm. like, what it's telling us? Yeah, it's a great question. In, in Genesis chapter 1, I don't know if you've ever noticed that it's formatted in a really funky way. So most. Most of the time, if you're reading a narrative, a story, it's in paragraphs, and each paragraph is indented. But what do you see when you look at Genesis 1? Well, the first line isn't indented, everything else is. Yeah, so it's like this, it's called a hanging indent, where the first line is like hanging over, and then the other stuff is indented, which is really odd. It doesn't look like poetry, it doesn't look like story, it looks like a, its own whole thing. Yeah. So if we read it carefully, We will find that it seems to be primarily concerned with fruitfulness. And if you think about ancient Near Eastern people living in an agrarian society, so they grow their own food, they can't just go down to Walmart and pick out their groceries for the week, right? They're growing their own food. Their primary concern would be how can I grow enough crops to last me through the winter? And, and how can I make sure that my children don't die of starvation? And if we read Genesis 1 really carefully, we see that it's addressing the concerns that farmers would have had. That makes sense. So, what does the first verse actually say? So, the first verse reads In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, this is a way of saying He made the things in the sky and the things on land, like He made everything. It's a way of saying everything. But what's really interesting is that in verse two, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. So there's already an earth.、Mm-hmm. And it's, it says there was, it was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Wait, so hold on. You're saying there was earth before God said, Let there be light. That's what's going on in Genesis 1. It seems as though God first creates matter, maybe in verse 1. But 
it's a matter that doesn't do anything. Like a void. It, yeah, it says it's formless and empty. Another way of saying that would be like, it's barren and unfruitful. You can't do anything with it because the ground's all covered with water. It's, it's in a state of disorganization or disorder. Okay. So God then gradually brings order to, to the earth in these six days. So first saying, let there be light, and then going on to create the other things. But if, if we recognize that there's already matter created in verses 1 and 2, then the days are not so much creating new things as they are bringing order to what God created in verse 1. So it's very possible that the order may have happened in six days or over a long period of time, but that the void as we call it, mm -hmm. was there for much longer. Yeah, that's very possible. And that's how many Christians today read this text. So my own, my own journey with this text is a little bit interesting. I grew up in a context in which we assumed that the earth was created in six days mm -hmm. and that the earth was young and that any scientist who said that the earth was old was clearly just like rejecting the Bible. And and then I went off to Bible college and I began learning about how to read the Bible well, how to be a good Bible reader. Mm -hmm. And the first thing they taught us is that there's narrative, poetry, or discourse, prose discourse. Those are the three main types of literature. And that each type of literature calls for a different kind of sensitivity on the reader's part, that we'd be looking for different kinds of things. And yeah. so I remember feeling so empowered by this. Like, Nobody has ever told me this stuff before. And so I went back. I, I thought, I, I'm going to go through the whole Bible. I'm going to take three different colored pencils, one for a narrative, one for poetry, and one for discourse. And I'm just going to color in the margins so that I know what I'm reading. And I opened up to Genesis 1, and I was like, what is that? If yeah. you read it, it has kind of a rhythmic sound to it, mm -hmm. and yet it's not quite poetry. But it's clearly not narrative because it's not even organized like narrative. Right. So if it's not that, then what is it? Yeah, it seems to be a hybrid genre, a, its own kind of thing. And it's, to me, it reads like a liturgical text, like we are celebrating God's creative work and it's been organized in a six day week to make a particular point. But it wasn't until years later that I saw this. I remember being in seminary and reading a book that kind of tried to point out the rhythmic order to Genesis 1. And I was like, mind blown, this stuff is so cool. Like if this was just a blow by blow account of God's creative work, like if somebody was, obviously somebody wasn't, but if somebody was following God around with a legal pad and a pen and like mm -hmm. writing down what happened, it wouldn't sound like this because this sounds really highly stylized. Yeah. But, but nobody had ever shown me like how that style worked. So I remember writing to one of my Bible college professors and saying, I just read this book. What do you think of this idea? And he said, well, yeah, that's pretty much how I read it. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? I went all the way through your classes and you never told me this. And his answer was, you didn't ask. Huh. So that's why I'm glad we're having this conversation yes. and you're asking the question. So Quick pause. For those of us that are human, what is a liturgical text? Oh, thank you. Good question. All right. So um, you've grown up, you've spent most of your childhood in churches that are not liturgical. So liturgy is like a well-ordered, like scripted church service. 
So okay. if you imagine the Catholic Church or an Anglican Church or some Reformed churches have a liturgy that they follow. So I grew up in a pretty liturgical church. We had a bulletin, and in the bulletin it told us exactly which songs we were going to sing, which hymns, and they mm -hmm. had the numbers the number of the hymn from the hymn book, mm -hmm. and it would tell you whether it was the blue hymnal or the red hymnal. And there was a little asterisk next to it if you were supposed to stand up during that song. So like no spontaneity at all, oh, like yeah. it was all pre-scripted. And the prayer would be like pre-scripted and we would all say the Apostles' Creed together. That's liturgy, if it's like planned out in advance. And usually it's not depending on the worship leader or the pastor spontaneously inspiring people, but it's actually something that the church has read or prayed for centuries. So, so it's that's liturgy. Like a performance. Yes. But it's a it's a thoughtful performance. I used to think it was kind of stilted, like where's your emotion? This doesn't really seem like you're part of this. But I think what I've come to appreciate about liturgy is that it doesn't depend on someone's spontaneity and inspiration, but you're participating with the long history of the church. So to so, say that Genesis 1 is a liturgical text is to suggest that this chapter was written to be used in worship, that oh, it was written okay. for believers to recite together as they remember God's creative work. That's really interesting. So it was almost like when you stand up in church and you all read the verse together. Yes. Kind of. Yeah, so this would be something that congregations could read together that would celebrate God's creative work, but it would celebrate it in a liturgical way. It's highly stylized rather than being a blow-by-blow -blow account of how it happened. So we come to the Bible, and this is where we started. We come to the Bible wondering, how God made the world, and we expect it to answer that question. But if this is liturgy, then it might be telling us instead why God made the world and what right. is the purpose of the world. So the point isn't that he could do it in six days because right. we all know he could do it faster if he wanted. Yep. The reason is why and how. Yes. And so we'll talk more about that in the second segment. Um, but I think the, the thing to note now is just that the concern with Genesis chapter 1 is fruitfulness for an ag agrarian culture and that the days correspond to each other. So I'd never seen this before I was in seminary. But if you line up the days next to each other, days 1, 2, and 3 correspond mm -hmm. to days 4, 5, and 6. How do they correspond? So in the first three days, God is making the locations, like the domains. Mm -hmm. And then in days four, five, and six, he's populating those domains. Oh, that's interesting. So the first day, God makes light and dark. And we're thinking like, oh, that would be like sun, moon, and stars. No, it's just light and dark, which is a domain in which the sun, moon, and stars can live. And that's the day four. So space. So space. So a lot of people have wondered, and this is one of the paradoxes of Genesis chapter 1. How do you have light in day, on day 1, but you don't have a sun until day 4? Well, if it's not actually giving us the blow-by-blow blow of how God did it, then that's less of an issue. Because really what's going on is God's making a space in which the heavenly bodies can, can live. So the, the sun, moon, and stars, what's really interesting about them is that they're, we're told that we, th we think of them as like a way of marking day and night. But here it says, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. So all the way in Genesis 1, 
we have a mark of festival calendars. That's what, um, that's what the sacred times is referring to, is like Jewish festivals. So these, that's the purpose of these lights. They're, bringing, they're separating day from night. They're marking off time so that you can celebrate festivals. And if you're a farmer, that would be like planting and harvest right. and first fruits, those kind of festivals. And then they're serving as signs, which would be, the, the word signs here means cosmic um, cosmic moments like an eclipse or that sort of thing where you're looking at the sky and you're thinking, wow, this is a big cosmic event. That's what the sun, moon, and stars are for. So day one is the space. Day four is the residence of that space. Okay, well, what about day two and five? So day two is where God makes sky and water. So we, we start off in verse two with the the earth being formless and empty and, and the spirit of God is hovering over the water. So there's water everywhere. And what happens on day two is the sky is separated from the water. And ancient peoples thought of there being water above the sky and water below the sky. So you have the seas down below and there's water up there too. And there's like this space that gets opened up between them where people can breathe and birds can fly. That's really interesting. I don't think that's like any kind of perspective we have on the earth now. No, it isn't. And we don't, we don't think of there being waters up there, but if you're an ancient person, imagine yourself, you're a farmer and you've planted your crops, you've done your job, now what do you need next? Water. You need water, and where does it come from? The sky. The sky, and so they would talk about the windows of heaven opening and the water coming through, and, um, and so it just made sense to them that there were storehouses up there somewhere that where God kept water. Kind of makes sense. Yeah, so that's day two, sky and water, and then day five is the residence of that. So day five is fish and birds. So you have fish in the seas, and birds in the sky. There you go, like fish swimming up all above us, <laughs> just like an aquarium. I don't know. I don't know if they thought about fish being up in the heavens, but certainly they thought about them in the ocean. You couldn't have animals yet because there's no dry land, right? Right. But on day three is the creation of dry land. So in day three, there's another separation. So day one is separating light and dark. Day two is separating sky and water. Day three is separating seas and dry land. So now we actually have habitable space. And day three actually lingers. Not only is there dry ground, but there's like a double creation on day three. And the second thing is let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. So there's, again, a focus on fruitfulness. Now we have a place for things to grow. So it's like preparing it for the animals. Exactly, exactly. And that's who moves in on day six. God makes animals, and then there's, again, a double creation on day six. So first is animals. This is another mind-blowing thing that I just sort of recently became aware of. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock, according to their kinds, there's domesticated animals immediately in this liturgical text. That's crazy. Which doesn't actually make sense, right? If, if it took time for them to capture animals and domesticate them, then this is not showing us how it happened, but it's giving us a vision of why it happened. So that oh, there's a place okay. for wild animals, domesticated animals, and creepy crawlies, all the creatures that move along the ground. So that's the first part of day six, but there's a double creation on day six. And the second thing is God making mankind. So humans are created on day six to populate this land. And just like, oh, I forgot to say that when God makes the sun, moon, and stars on day four, not only do they mark sacred times and, 
and days and years, but it says God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. So it's as if the sun, moon, and stars are ruling over the heavenly realm. And then on day six, God makes people, and it tells us why he made, it doesn't explain how he made people. It tells us why he made people. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, but doesn't it tell us how, like from the dust of the ground? That's not until Genesis chapter two. So that's another conversation that we could have. Oh, that's interesting. But I think for now, what we, ha what we get in Genesis one is this focus on fruitfulness, a focus on God pre creating order and making space in which humans and other created animals can flourish. So when people talk about the old earth, mm -hmm. Are they implying that this happened also in those old times and that Adam and mm -hmm. Eve lived in those old times or that they were still much later? There are a range of ideas, a range of ways that people respond to that question. And it's a really good one. Um, you could line up a whole bunch of Christian scholars or Christian Bible readers, and it would make a full spectrum of ranging from people who say God created Adam and Eve on day six. So they're connecting the stories in Genesis two with this, with this account in Genesis one, that these people are Adam and Eve, all the way to God used evolution in order to create humans. And then Adam and Eve, if they were real people, then were brought into the picture later as sort of the beginning of God's interaction with humanity. So there are Christians who say evolution is how God made the world, but um, cre the Bible's creation account tells us why he made humans. So they would say, they would disagree with scientists who say, um, we're a product of evolution and it's all just a, a, a happenstance, a chance, like we're here by accident. They would say, no, God purposed this particular process that resulted in humans being created. So it's sounding like you're saying evolution is possible, but that God was behind it. If, uh, yes, I would say that a, a biblical way of reading the creation story or of thinking about creation has to have God as the creator. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is telling us and celebrating what God did. But I think there's room for some, there's room for Christians to say, this isn't answering the question of how God did it. So that would leave room for evolution. It doesn't, it doesn't solve that question. And I'm not a scientist, so I don't feel qualified to like evaluate scientific theories and say whether it's plausible or not. But in terms of being able to um, match something up with a biblical witness, I've seen a lot of faithful Christians who say, I love Jesus, I believe the Bible is the word of God, and I think evolution is how God made the world. But yeah. between those two extremes, there's lots of other variations. So some people would say, the earth is really old, um, God created it in verse one, and then there was a long time before the six days of bringing order and God making Adam and Eve. So there's, there's a lots of different ways that you can make sense of it. So the sixth day is when he also produces animals. Mm -hmm. So if people are using old earth as like, that's the time when dinosaurs roamed. Mm -hmm. So like, how does that fit if animals weren't created? Yeah, that, that would raise some problems. So someone who believes that the earth is old 
and that God, were you saying um, people who believe in evolution and there's dinosaurs and no, humans didn't? No, just people didn't... that believe in the old earth. Okay, so somebody who says the earth was old, but, but uh, thinks that dinosaurs and humans didn't live at the same time would then have to come to Genesis 1 and say, that doesn't it doesn't quite work for it to be a blow by blow. Yeah, account. so it's very possible that it isn't a blow by blow. This is just kind of an example because we can't even understand yeah. or begin to fathom how right. it was created. Right, I think the bottom line that I would want our viewers to, to grab onto is just that Genesis 1 is a highly stylized text and that it is giving us a depiction of God making the world. And we'll, t we'll talk after the break about why he might have styled it in six days. Um, but hopefully we've pointed out like that the purpose has to do with fruitfulness and order and that God is behind that. So what about the Big Bang Theory? This is something um, from my perspective is an atheist point of view. Mm -hmm. um, it happened by chance. Mm -hmm. um, it was just an atom blowing up and expanding, mm -hmm. um, which from some point of views, like it's a plausible way to think about it. Mm -hmm. So how could that fit in? Yeah, so um, a Christian scientist who believes in the Big Bang would then say God is the one who caused this Big Bang, right? Well, right. Because scientists look at the universe and say it's ever expanding. So it looks like it must have once been small and it's getting bigger and bigger. Um, so a Christian scientist would say God was the cause of that big explosion and light that resulted in life. So could this have been the void it was talking about before? It was like formless and empty, but could there have been, like there was earth. So mm -hmm. could that have been atoms or was that just like space? I don't know. This is where we get into speculation. I wasn't there then and there weren't any humans then I to see know. it, right? You so gray hair that's kind of proven otherwise. <laughs> I, think, um, I think the bottom line is that any account of the actual how question is somewhat speculative because no human was there to see it happen. So we can either conclude that, that Genesis 1 is telling us how and it's because God passed on that information to a human author or we could say this is a human author's celebration of God's creative work but it's not answering the question of how. So if it's speculation and no one can know for sure, mm -hmm. why does this tear Christians apart? Hmm. That's a great question. A lot of Christians um, have a certain set of lenses on when they're reading the Bible, and they, they think if everybody else doesn't see it the way I see it, then they must not believe this book is true. But as I've tried to show, there's a whole range of ways of wrestling with the text and wrestling with apparent contradictions in the text um, done by faithful Christians. And so I personally don't think that this question should be a litmus test for whether somebody's actually a true Christian or not. Well, yeah, I mean, it's some tough stuff. No one was there and we all read it differently, like you were saying. And I also think like the, the jury's still out on a lot of things. Like science hasn't figured out everything. Well, yeah. A lot of it is theories that are still being tested, hypotheses. And so I feel like it's too soon for us to like close down to say, I certainly, you know, to be certain that it happened in a certain way. We'll come back after the break and talk more about why. All right, sounds good. See you then. And now a word from our sponsor, Prairie College. The Masters of Leadership in Global Christian Education 
is designed for educators who wish to expand their leadership abilities. The program offers the integration of global, biblical, and technological strategies to incorporate into your curriculum. This degree will equip you to lead and teach from a global Christian perspective, integrate biblical principles and teachings in the classroom, and leverage instructional technology to empower learners to further the Kingdom of God. Building on Prairie's 100-year history as a leader in biblical education, the program will equip you with advanced biblical literacy to apply to your educational context. After you complete the degree, you'll qualify for ACSI's Principal Certification. Start your application to join the 2022 cohort of learners and join a class of emerging education leaders from all over the world. Learn more at prairie.edu slash masters. Looking forward to seeing you in class. All right, welcome back. Okay, so my next question is, if God didn't create the world in six days, mm-hmm. why would they word it like that? Yeah, so why use the model of six days if God didn't do it right. in that amount of time? Right. So we've talked about how the six days mirror each other. The first three mirror the, the last three. And we've talked about how the primary focus of it is fruitfulness and that the average ancient Israelite would have been a farmer thinking about fruitfulness and worried about survival. So if you think about the end, the climax of Genesis chapter one is when God creates mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So this is the crowning moment in God's creative work. He's made humans and he said, these beings that I've created are different than everything else I've created. They are different because they are made in my image or as my image. And then it tells us what the purpose is of being the image of God. It says, God gives them a mandate. He says, uh, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So remember we talked about there's domains and then there's residents of each domain. Right. So if God has now created the whole earth and now he's telling people, go fill up the earth, it sort of fits that idea of the domains and the residents. And then it says, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God has given people a job to do. The job he's given them to do is to fill the earth and subdue it and to rule over the rest of creation. So if their job is as his image to go rule, then it would make sense that they would pattern their life after God's own creative work. So the creative work that they're gonna do as a part of filling the earth and subduing it He wants them to do it in a weak cycle. He doesn't want them to work endlessly or to be like machines. He wants them to take a break regularly. So I would say that the the purpose for telling the creation of the world in six days with a seventh day Sabbath rest is so that the Israelite family could, could mimic that in their own practice of agriculture. So they're going to work for six days and then they're going to take a day off just like God did. So it's liturgy as in they're celebrating God's work as liturgy, but it's also a pattern for them to follow. Okay. So it seems like over the years, we've kind of lost like the meaning of the Sabbath and the Mm -hmm. traditions for those of us who are Mm non-Jews. But if God gave us that day as like 
for everyone that follows him, then mm -hmm. why, like... Yeah, it would seem from this text like practicing the Sabbath is part of what it means to be human. That we are to do the kind of creative work that God does in bringing order to chaos, right? In, right. in keeping yeah. things in their proper domains. And that we do that six days a week and then we take a day off. I don't know why everyone wouldn't, wouldn't want to be doing this. Because Sabbath is like God saying, you're not a machine. I didn't create you to work 24-7. I want you to take a rest. Yet teachers give us homework on the weekends anyways. <laughs> One thing we might want to just mention is that I think at least as a kid, I imagined that God needed a rest because he was tired after creating for six days. So we've already discussed the possibility that God didn't actually do it in six days, but that he's providing a model for us by telling it in six days. But even if he did create the world in six days, which is a certainly possible, he did not rest on the seventh day because he was tired. He rested the way a king rests on his throne once his whole realm is brought into order. He's vanquished his enemies. His you know, public works projects are all working well and his palace is built. Then he can sit on his throne and rule. And it's not that he's taking a nap, but he's resting in his rule. And that is what God is inviting us to do, to bring order to our world for six days and then to sit back and enjoy the fruits of our labor. Yeah, that that's day. definitely something for those Broadway fans out there that's mentioned in Hamilton when George Washington hmm. decides to step back from the role of presidency and hmm. he talks about like enjoying the fruit from the trees he's planted oh, yeah. and sitting in the shade of them yeah. as like a metaphor. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And I think that's in something God's inviting all of us to, to participate in is to take a break and not work nonstop. So if God has established this week, mm -hmm. it's seven days, like why seven? It's mm. a great question. In the Hebrew language, the word seven means complete or perfect. So oh. it's a way of like showing the fullness of time. And it's really interesting when you start to dig into numbers in the Bible, because there are a lot of sevens that are associated with, with fullness of time. So there are seven Jewish festivals okay. and all of them are in the first seven months of the year. Two of them last for seven days. Uh, weeks are seven days, as we've already talked mm -hmm. about, ending in the Sabbath. But then every seventh year is a Sabbath year. And every seven Sabbath years is a year of Jubilee. So the entire concept of Jewish time is built around cycles of sevens as a way of reinforcing the rest that God wants his people to enjoy. It makes you think about covid like, we haven't taken our Sabbath year, so this is forced upon <laughs> this us. This is a forced Sabbath for everybody. Yeah. So we have talked about a lot of stuff in this podcast already. We've talked about why God gives us the story of creation mm -hmm. in a six-day pattern. We've looked at kind of how that pattern works and how there's domains and fillings of each day. Um, we've talked about how the focus is fruitfulness. And we've talked about how this book was not written to answer our questions, but to answer ancient questions. So right. ancient people weren't probably wondering where did the world come from? Where did stuff come from? Mm -hmm. But they were wondering, what is it here for? And how can I find fruitfulness? How can I make things grow and participate in agricultural cycles in a fruitful way? So those are all kind of paradigm shifting things that I hope will take out some of the antagonism between science and faith. 
that science and faith do not have to be at odds with each other, right. but that they're both actually answering different kinds of questions. So scientists are, are trying to answer the question, how we got here. But if the Bible's answering a different question, then they can coexist side by side in helpful ways. Well, thank you so much for answering my questions. Mm -hmm. Are there any resources our listeners can go to learn more about these topics? That's a great question. So I've referred to a couple of different books in the course of our conversation. This is the one um, that I found that I learned the most from in terms of the structure of the six days. So the book is called In the Beginning, and it's by Henri Blochet, a well, French writer. Well, that's an appropriate title. Yes, it is. And then um, this one's been super helpful to me. This is a more recent book by Michael Lefebvre, and it's called The Liturgy of Creation. And he's looking at how calendars functioned in ancient times okay. and how the date stamps that we find in the first five books of the Bible are not journalistic, but they're liturgical. They're trying to tie Israel's history to their festival calendar. So he takes a second look at Genesis chapter 1 and sees um, what, how it's functioning, and that is as a model work week. And then this is, a, this is one that's pretty well known, John Walton's The Lost World of Genesis 1. This one's really easy to read. And this is where I got the idea that the Bible's written to answer ancient questions rather than modern ones. So any of these books would be a great place to start if you want to learn more. That's fantastic. Well, we will have all of those linked below, mm -hmm. along with ways you can contact us and follow us on social media platforms. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Take Two podcast. See you next time.